1: So the statement that we define, at least in Coursera, is people should feel to run as fast as possible, as long as you meet these like three quality objectives. Hello and welcome to the Engineering
0: Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community.
2: I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC.
0: And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features a conversation with Richard Wong, SVP of Engineering at Coursera, to discuss the dilemma between speed and quality engineering work. At Coursera, Richards helped the company navigate just about every stage of business, from finding product market fit to the world of being a mature post-IPO company. Before his time at Coursera, Richard helped scale LinkedIn's jobs marketplace and talent solutions to become LinkedIn's first billion-dollar product, and he also oversaw the product development for LinkedIn's international expansion. He also spent over a decade at Microsoft leading a number of high-profile product development teams. And this conversation is an absolute masterclass in executive-level strategic thinking about balancing speed and quality in your organization. We cover how the dilemma of speed and quality evolves as a company scales, how to balance building new features and fixing quality issues, internal and external signals to help you determine your priorities, plus how to avoid overengineering and gain alignment from your executive team. Enjoy our conversation with Richard Wong. So first off, an official welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: All right. Thank you, Patrick and Jerry. Thank you for inviting me to be here. So to to kick us off,
0: our community asks us all the time in a lot of different conversations that we have the big question of how do I navigate speed versus quality? And this comes from people from all different levels of the company and what makes this conversation special with you Richard is your experience with Coursera as they say in in something like baseball you've pretty much covered all of the bases from going from zero to one to finding product market fit to scaling to recently IPOing uh, and so throughout all of these stages you've had to navigate sort of the shifting dilemma between speed versus quality which is very very tricky for people And so we've planned to talk about a couple of those different phases. So to begin, I was wondering if you could share a story maybe that captures this dilemma for you. Is there a specific moment or a conversation from your time at Coursera that has embodied this dilemma for you? And can you tell us that story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you. Uh, This is a great question. I wouldn't say that like speed and quality, they are diametrically opposite to each other. In fact, for many companies, it's part of our job description as engine leaders to design an organization, a process or a system that allows us to move both speed and quality at the same time. But from time to time, as the business evolves, we may be falling behind on one side, and we did shift the balance to the other side. I often think about engineering or engineering processes is like designing a traffic system. So think about a typical traffic system that when you actually go to El Camino Real or on 101, they designed a system to try to optimize for two things, right? Number one is to maximize the amount of traffic flow on the street, right? So everybody can get to their final destinations with minimal disruptions. But you also want to make sure there's a certain level of safety, right? So maybe the traffic can move very fast, but you don't want everybody dies, right? At the intersection, they they collide with each other. This is pretty much what happens in the engineering organization. On traffic system, you define a set of rules on, like you drive on the right side of the road, you flash your signals before you turn, and you move when the light is green and stop when it's red. And engineering you do the same thing except the type of design is slightly different so you have design review code view unit testing setting SLA for your services that's what we call kind of processes here but even in the real world the traffic system is not static right so think about this right if there's a city if you actually live in a town with only a couple hundred people there's seldom there's any cars on the street usually the amount of regulations or restrictions are pretty limited, right? Many of the intersections probably are uncontrolled. There's no speed limit. Why? Because in of settings, I mean, the stick is really low in terms of like, the chance that you cause an accident that has like big damage to anyone. That is the same thing, I think, for an early stage company. That when I joined Coursera, Coursera was a series B company. We were much smaller than where we are today. At that point, what you basically do is just, you want to run fast. You allow people to go into different directions and try to figure out as much as possible on you know what is needed by our customers. In fact the reality is like 90% of the startups they run out of money before they get the right idea or even for successful startups, right? 90% of the ideas don't work out on the first trial. So you better not to spend too much energy or time thinking about scaling or building a perfect product to start with because most of these ideas will get thrown away. But you'll know that when things change right over time when you're becomes more populated, at some point it becomes San Francisco or New York City, then you have a much more limitations, right? You have a stop sign, you have traffic lights every 100 yards. You put even emphasis to maximize the balance between speed and safety. So I think in a growth company like what Corsair has been going through, it's constantly about like redesigning our traffic system. Like in the city, maybe when the traffic doubles every few years, when the number of people double every few years, Sometimes it's more evolutionary, but sometimes it's because there's an accident. There's some issue, big issue happened that push you for that change, right? So you asked about like what are some of the examples? I mean, we definitely had that kind of challenge about three to four years ago. When we started scaling. So when I say when we start scaling, it was a situation that we had built our enterprise business. We have built a degrees platform on our system. So at that point, unlike the early days, Many users were using Coursera just as a hobby, right? They enjoy the learning. They just come here whenever they have free time. Now, Coursera actually became the platform that our enterprise customers are relying on to up-level their employees' organizations. And universities are putting degrees on our platform and final exams on our platform. It was a turning point for us. Now, these customers, they have much higher expectation on our product functionalities and qualities. And at one point, we were too reactive in thinking about quality. We just like followed the old way of like keep shipping, shipping very, very fast without thinking too much about the experience and the quality. And very quickly, you hear these customers, they shift the conversation from about they want more features to talk about their frustration on our platform. They said, when I try to do this, it fails, it errors, it doesn't work, it give me incorrect information to the point that it became a major business risk for the organization. Each quarter at a company, we actually talk about the highlights and lowlights, right? Three, four years ago, there was a couple quarters. The major business risk for our company was because of these kind of frustrations from our customer about the quality of our product. It was definitely very stressful as a head of engineering and try to manage through the situation. But the fact that across leadership team, a strong alignment was gained to shift the balance to more focus on quality side was a great outcome that I can't ask for more. So once you have that, it's much easier for you to actually drive the level of execution across organization to fix the problem.
2: I'm curious to learn what changed that eventually helped improve the quality of the product. Is that prioritization?
1: Is that amount of resource? Is that something else? I I think it's a combination of all of them. So you definitely need to start with a high-level alignment among the leadership team. I mean, here's the truth, right? If you think about the growth of a company, there are many, many dimensions and factors that impact and and support the growth of the company. Sometimes the limitation may be on the sales side, like the head of sales may be running into challenges or big opportunities for the company. And sometimes it can be on marketing side, sometimes it can be something else, right? But in the case of quality, a big part of responsibility is definitely fall within the product and engineering organization on how we change the game by showing to our customers a quality product. Now in that particular situation, it's so important as head of engineering or any engineering leader to be able to explain to your cross-functional partner on why this is important. So, majority of the time, you will think that, oh of course, I mean, who doesn't want the better quality of product? I mean, everybody wants If you ask anyone and say, do you want us to have a better quality? No one will say no to it. It's just about the trade-offs. It's about like, well, if we need to improve the quality of that, that means we need to delay or stop building this particular feature for the next quarter until we fix the underlying issue. That is where the challenges happen, right? It's about like, okay, we need to stop something in order to give way for this. I think building the set of alignment is so important. Like, how do we get the alignment? Well, first of all, I think every leader in organization should be getting the basic facts and information correct. So a lot of times when misalignment happens is because people don't share the same set of data or information. So for example, maybe we have like 10 customer escalation in last week from our top customers that I'm aware of. But if our head of sales is not aware of that, then she definitely said, no, 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 like why do we spend too much time on quality, right? So maybe sometimes it's as simple as like, do you know that your top customers say they are very frustrated with our platform that you may not be aware of that, right? But sometimes even if they are aware of this information, it may still come down to different judgment because there may be some information that I'm not aware of or maybe some experience that people had that in the past will lead them to a different conclusion. So I think the first starting point definitely is about like building the set of alignment in organization by sharing information. There will be cases that the judgment will still be incorrect. That is the time that you need to escalate and try to get a clear decision across organization about priority. I think in our particular case, it was pretty obvious about three, four years ago when we experienced this set of problem in organization, when we get the escalation from our customers, Across the leadership team, we all agree that we need to address that particular problem. So that is the first step. But after that, I would say there are some tangible and technical steps that we need to take, I mean, together. Not just about improving quality, because quality is a very, very ambiguous term. I'm sure if you actually go to ask your engineers, your cross-functional partner and say, okay, should we improve quality? They will say yes. But what do you mean by quality? They will probably give you like 15 different answers. on what quality means, right? Sometimes, I mean, the most obvious probably is about like bugs or issues, but sometimes it's about like the usability of the product, the user and how smooth the experience it is, or the performance of the site. And sometimes, actually, when some customers say that the quality of your product is not good enough, they actually mean that you're missing some features compared to your competitors. They will say that oh, the quality of your product is not good, but it actually means something else, right? So it's so important, I think, in the organization, Jerry, your question is about like, what do we need to do is to define clearly about the objectives. When we say we need to improve quality, what objective functions we are trying to optimize for? At least at that case, of course, when our customer tell us about we are not up to the standard or expectations to meet their growing needs for their critical business usage, it was very clear to us that the issue at that point was about you know the functional defects that we have in our product, right? So we have bugs here and there across our system that did not meet their expectation. So the first thing that we need to do, okay, we need to agree on fixing quality issues as a priority. The second thing is that of the quality issue, we know that the most important thing is to reduce the number of functional bugs on our system, which we primarily define as the number of P0 and P1 bugs that we got reported every month. And then after that, you need to set some objective and measurable goals to proxy that progress. So, for example, when we measured the last quarter, we see that every month we had about like 20 P0 pm bucks, which was what caused the frustration of our customers. And then we say that in six months, we want to reduce from 20 to become five. So you need to set some goals to actually encourage your team and incentivize your team to pay attention to it. And then once you have defined this kind of standard, that is much easier because at that point, I don't even need to be the person to solve the problem because probably I'm the dumbest person in the room that can solve that problem. People inside the organization, they are much closer to the problem. They understand what is working, what's broken. They will come up with creative solution, whether it's about changing processes or changing technology to do that. And of course, I think throughout that, that process, we need to inspect every single thing. Like we set up a test organization, we build test framework, we have post-mortem meeting, we have retrospective meeting every week to review all these bugs but those are secondary. Once you have that kind of system and structure, even if you have a system that does not work on on the first trial, your team of engineers and leaders will be able to quickly find new solutions to address those issues. So what I hear is,
2: first of all, you have to have the information parity across different teams to have a common understanding of what quality really means. And then it's the alignment of priority and later on the, the process that come into place that ensure people have something to hold on to so they iteratively improve.
1: Yeah. So I would say that that is mostly my performance review, not the team's performance review on (laughs) on those numbers, so that I am still motivated to actually fix the problem. But I think that is actually when we try to set these goals, the primary motivation for me is less on kind of performance evaluation. We set business goals for our company. We talk about number of users. We talk about revenue. We talk about renewal. We talk about utilizations for our product. If this is something important, Then we talk about it. This is something that we talk about in all-hands meeting. This is something that we talk about in team meetings. And this is something that not just I hold myself accountable. Like I publish that in my OKRs in the company and say that we need to hit this kind of goals. But I also ask my peers and say that, do you want me to hit this goal? That go back to the point about the alignment, right? Like I want to hear from you clearly about like whether this is the most important thing that you want me to accomplish and help the growth of the business, right? Head of sales, head of marketing, tell me if this is something that you really believe that we should be fixing. If yes, I think it's clear, like we need to work together and try to drive to that outcome. But if I'm talking about this in all hands meeting, every single meeting that we have, and I pay attention to these numbers, I think very quickly, people throughout the organization, they'll understand the criticality of this problem, and then they will be self-motivated to try to drive and find solutions for that. So that's how I see it.
2: So it takes time and repetition to have people that really understand the importance of quality as a leader. The patience or the willingness to repeat is important to ensure that the message is delivered, especially the, the team is large.
1: Yeah, I think that applies to pretty much any changes in organization, on, in right? So organization has inertia. They have been following certain set of rules and processes. I mean, go back to that traffic system, right? If you're driving down the road every single day to the same destinations, you probably have developed some habits on how you navigate around this stop sign or red lights, or you kind of master your way to actually achieve your destination based on that set of rules. But if all of a sudden you detour, you change the way how, you know, you drive on the road and you have a slightly different directions, it will take a while for people to get used to that. And sometimes people Get frustrated because they don't know whether that detour will lead them to the final destination. They get frustrated because probably their job gets slowed down. At least for a period of time, right? They have no idea if this is going to be better for them. So it's so important for us as leaders whenever we drive any changes, whether it's about like pushing for speed or whether it's pushing for quality, we need to constantly to to radiate that positive energy to organization, explain to them why this is important and also show them progress. I think when people see their work translate into progress, translate into result. And there are quick wins. I think it's much easier for people to continue to commit and push for, you know, further progress in there.
2: One observation I had in the past, in mean, my own experience is that sometimes when customers or users have a lot of complaints about the quality of products it's actually a good thing because it just motivates people to do better and can be a trigger for a major change that it would otherwise hard to convince people to make.
1: What's your take on that? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. I think that is still my bias as well. For any engineering organization, for any you know, highly talented engineers, they take pride on what they achieve. Every engineers, they said that I want to build a product that lots of people want to use, I want to build a high-quality product, there's a lot of craftsmanship put in place. It's highly scalable, highly functional, best performance. I mean, this is all true. We all want to achieve that. But in reality, though, at a very early phase of your product, you don't want to over-engineer your product until you have some customers that are really using your product. I mean, I've learned these lessons in multiple companies that Sometimes because of our pride on saying that like, I want to actually build something very scalable. We try to build something, well, we did try to build something very scalable that can actually take in millions of users. But when you release the product to the market, like five people use it and then it never came back. It happened to all of us before. So I think it's so important for us to actually tune our strategy on what to focus on at the right time. So that means At the very beginning, you would actually want to spend all your energy to innovate and build product to the point that some customers are starting to give you feedback. Whether it's good feedback or negative feedback, actually both are fine. Like if people are giving you negative feedback, you know what it means? They basically say that, wow, I really think that your product is trying to solve a problem that I'm experiencing or I'm facing. That's why I'm willing to use your product. And when I try to use your product, I ran into these kind of issues that I really hope that you can fix it for me so that I can continue to use your product. That's actually what it means by that. The truth is that if your product does not provide value, well, you don't even start. I mean, all of us probably get a lot of spam email every day. Like we don't dare to even look at that and try the product to start with. Or sometimes after we try the product, we know that it does not even solve the problem. Like it's not remotely solving the problem that I'm facing. Are you going to provide feedback to them? No, like you just ignore it forever right? You're not going to use that product again. So getting some feedback from your customer is actually a good sign. I will always choose this path and say, we build something, our customers want it. They tell us something that we are not doing good enough. I'm not saying that I enjoy actually building a crappy product. I'm saying that I enjoy building a product that our customers, they say that you need to do a better job so that we really spend time on building it and meet their expectations. So that is still the primary bias I have. Now, even at Coursera, we have iterated through from the very beginning, from the zero to one phase. Now we are still growing. I would not say IPO is, is a final milestone. We still have many, many years ahead of us to continue to advance our mission, to actually build a great product to serve much more users. We're still trying many new things to get us to 10x or 100 times, right, in terms of the reach of our customers and, and our learners. I think in many, many cases, I still bias to two works pushing out new functionality and product and optimize for speed as long as we meet some basic expectation of the quality of the users.
0: Well, I just had a follow-up question for how you formulate sort of that shared understanding of of what is that basic expectation because I think some of the dilemmas that different engineering leaders have shared with us is there's tension at different levels where some either frontline managers or, or maybe director level managers are sort of seeing signals for we need to optimize for quality or as defined as like, you know, removing features, bugs, creating consistent user experiences. Then you have executive teams that are optimizing for, you know, how do we build new features and and enroll these new things in new lines of business. And so there seems to be a mismatch in terms of the, the consciousness for how you should make decisions. And so I just would love to learn how you can help bridge the gap and create that shared sense of understanding for what that basic level of expectation is.
1: You know, I think this is a great question. I think there are short-term things and long-term things. So let me explain the long-term thing first, right? At some point, I think the executive team and the leadership need to achieve the trust relationship between different functional leaders and saying that like, okay, if you are head of marketing, then I trust that you are doing the right set of things to run the marketing events or business or methodology. Like I can provide some input and feedback to you based on what I know, what I see, what I observe, Right. But I think I have to trust that the process, the investment over there on their marketing systems is the right thing. It's approximately the right thing. And you're doing the best thing that is possible for the company. So it will be the same on the engineering side. You need to get to the point as an engineering leader, one of the most critical responsibilities, it's not just about like driving execution, right? It's actually to represent your engineering team and gain the trust from your CEO and your peers and saying that Richard, you are mostly making the right decisions for the company and to the point that they don't need to spend too much time to evaluate your decision every single time. They basically say, okay, it seems that you're delivering your product, you're driving business, driving technology innovation, but you're also addressing a lot of the basic you know, technical debt or quality issues or architecture issues. Over time, that's how you establish a system that allows you to have some freedom to make that adjustment within your team. Right? The people that are most familiar with that technology problem is people sitting in your team, your engineers, your engineering leaders in your team. So they probably will be able to make the best judgment about the level of investment. But you want to set the relationship to the level that you have that freedom to actually drive that level of change without frequently get questioned or challenged on that level of decision. So this is long-term, that every engine leader, they should strive for this. Now, short-term, how do you actually get to kind of that reconciliation? I don't think there's a, a, a magical formula that to actually get us to that outcome. It would be so great if there was a magic formula. Yeah, I think the first thing is, well, I almost think about like improving quality is like building product. How do you think about building product? You set some goals and then you try to iterate to work that goals. And then when you achieve that, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work and then you evolve and change over time. But you just need to set a clear expectation, I think to, you know, people around in the organization about what we are trying to accomplish. As, as I go back to the example I was talking about. I think the first starting point is not agreeing on whether we need to have a test team or whether we have a test automation or whether we have, you know, unit testing. That is not the things that people need to agree on. People need to agree on how the success look like at the end. If people cannot agree on how the success look like, then they will never agree on the methodology. So I think that as an engineer leader, when you say, okay, I struggle because my frontline engineers has different opinion with my managers and has different opinion from mine, has a different opinion with the executive team. Maybe the first thing that you should do is actually put a stick on the ground and say that when we solve this problem, this is how this is going to look like. Maybe the uptime of the system, maybe the number of bugs or maybe the number of customer escalation. Like people need to start agreeing on that front first and everything else will follow. So at least that's my experience. Patrick
0: here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world.
2: you have that conversation with your executive team or the cross-function leaders.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Sometimes it's because of a crisis. When I say a crisis, that was the story I shared about like three, four years ago when, okay, we got a lot of new business. We got a lot of new partners and all of a sudden they all tell us that your product sucks. So those are a crisis. And that one actually is easy. Even without me actually telling my CEO about this, he actually will come to me because you know what? This escalation email goes to him. A customer actually send him an email and say that, like, we don't want to use your product unless you fix the problem, right? So those are actually pretty easy. I think majority of the time is just to actually show the level of confidence and you tell them, we got it. I understand the criticality of that. Give us three months of time. And these are the things that I'm going to do. And you will be able to see that kind of outcome. I think it's really to project a set of confidence and your will to address the problem That will mitigate a lot of the issues. Of course, you have to deliver at the end, but I'm pretty confident about that part uh, in my organization. I think the more challenging part is about when there's no clear crisis. So we all know that we have technical debt in our system is slowing us down on a daily basis, or sometimes it's much more difficult for our engineers to actually get their job done or... They will easily get paid at like 2 a.m. because of some issues that happened in a system that we have known for a while, but we just didn't feel that we have time to do that. Those are actually more difficult conversations because when you actually, well, first of all, your CEO is not going to go and call you and say that, hey, what are we going to do about this, right? Because those are more hidden issues, right? But your team is suffering, but it does not actually propagate to the top level. My conversation actually primarily with my product leaders at that point is if you think about quality planning, what we do is about like, you lay out a set of business and product priorities on what each team need to deliver to kind of achieve their business goals. I mean, that is a pretty typical process, right? Every quarter we set some goals and say, we do project A, B, C, D, and at the end we'll have like 5% more revenue or users or something like that. And then we do a pretty rigorous prioritization. Of course, the product managers have very big influence on that priority within that list because they understand the need of customer, they understand business strategy, and engineers will provide input and tell them how easy, how difficult it is to do, and some alternative suggestions, right? But when I have set a contract with my product leader, is saying that like every quarter, Travin Sharvin is my product counterpart. I need to reserve 10% of my engineering time to actually solve technical debt issues within the organization. Don't even ask me what the project is. We will definitely make good use of the time. And we will definitely show some good result, like coming from the engineers, about the kind of problem they can solve in the organization. I think that really actually empowers our team. Having that level of trust and agreement with him and with the rest of the product organization, it allows the engineering organization to really focus on saying that, okay, how do we best utilize this 10% of time to solve whether it's productivity issues or bugs or on-call issues? And I think that's the way that we drive it. So... Of course, there are sometimes there are give and take, right? In some quarter, maybe that 10% will become 8% because there are some major deliverables that we need to hit for our partners and learners and customers. But there are also a period of time that the product team, they may be still thinking about a longer-term project. So the engineers will have a little bit more space. So they will expand that 10% to 15% of time. So over time, you establish some trust and system in the organization that will help you to manage that, not as like ongoing every two weeks, you need to talk to your product person about like, I need to improve this system. But there's an ongoing contract, like one time that empowers both product and engineering to maximize for their productivity and maximize for their experience while developing the product.
2: That's really valuable to know. I believe that 10% baseline agreement not only give you freedom on the engineering side to work on things that feel important, but also to a certain extent prevent the other side of the problem that focus too much on quality, you actually overengineering the, the the problem. Which in addition to my next question is that how do we prevent people spending too much time optimizing
1: for quality? This is not easy. Again, like go back to the point I was talking about, like we all want to do the best job, right? And and a lot of time engineering pride themselves on kind of the technical sophistication on the work that we have accomplished, right? So we design a system that can process a billion requests per hour, right? We design a system that can, you know, make it like two milliseconds faster. Like we all pride on these kind of achievements on the skills that we can demonstrate to others, right? So one of the most important things that I want to help my engineers is if we achieve that kind of results, if we complete this project, who will care about this? Like if the answer is not users, it's not our learners, it does not mean that we should not do that, but that should be the first question that we ask is about like, okay, are there technical improvement or architectural improvement that will bring actual benefit to our user and customer? So you thought like Jerry asked about performance. Sometimes performance is very meaningful. Like for example, we have over three quarters of our users are coming from outside of the United States. Today, I think if people have like good broadband connections within the United States, I think the performance is very, very good. I would say that we've done a pretty good job on optimizing for that part of the stack. But if people are sitting half a global away, they're sitting in Asia or maybe in India or in China or other countries that is half a global away from us, I think the performance is not that great. When the performance is not that great, uh, that's where engineering sophistication or improvement of optimizing for the extra one second and two seconds becomes very important. That's what we've been working on actually for the last six months or so, is to improve the performance for international users. So that is a perfect combination to say that good engineering challenge, but also solve a very key business problem. So that's the best combination of that. So what we want to remind people is, let's not try to solve, like as much as possible, let's be very careful on trying to solve a Technically challenging problem, without clear benefits to the user and the organization, except that it is cool. It does happen. I'm guilty of that a lot of time. I just like throw this idea to the team about like, well, let's rewrite this. Let's try to improve this. Let's build this cool system. So I have to remind myself and ask like, create a culture. Organization people ask about like, what is the benefit to the user? What is the benefit to our business? Right. That should be the starting point for people to be answer. And, you know, I think over time, once you have asked this question enough, it trains our people to identify what are the top priorities that we want to focus on That's the best combination between these two space. I I have a strong bias on the concept of not reinventing the wheel at Coursera. So there are something that we need to invent. We need to innovate. That is the problem. Like, let's go back to our mission on empowering people, to use education, the learning experience to transform their life. That is an area that we want to invent and innovate a lot. But we don't want to spend too much time on innovating on, let's build our own file systems, let's build our own database, let's build our own application framework, right? These are kind of things that solve the problem in the industry we should leverage the open source community or even contribute to the open source community to get to the best solution without spending time on just like making incremental improvement or reinventing something internally. Oftentimes those are over-engineering and it does not bring any benefit to our users and our customers nor the organization itself
0: you very vividly described the moment that was really clear for Coursera to need to focus on on quality and, and resolve customer issues. How does that conversation change within the different stages of a company? Are there other sort of maybe not obvious signals, but signals people can look out for that indicate you need to shift more on, on rapidly building features or shift more to quality? Are there certain things that you're looking out for as an engineering leader that are helping you build a sense of direction for where you should be taking the organization?
1: I think there are two types of signals, right? One is the external signals. The other is internal. So, I mean, I, I talk quite a bit about the external signals. I mean, the best way that you actually can tell is if you're not getting any feedback from your customers, don't even try to improve quality because nobody is using your product, right? Try to build a product that works, that people want to use it to start with. And then when you have a little bit complaint from your customers, don't overreact to that. I mean, you should listen to it. You try to understand it but don't overreact to that to pause all the innovation that you have, right? So you need to be very careful on thinking, you know, how to effectively try to collect information and data and feedback from your customer. I would say that this is still the best signals that we have, no matter which phase of your product. At the very beginning, by default, you don't have that much feedback from them, right? From your users and customers. So you should focus a lot on speed. The story I share about three, four years ago, I think that was when we were starting to grow and start to scale as part of a company, the journey of our company, and we start hearing the ping from them. I think that was a very important part of our lessons and journey. And as leaders, I think that is the most important signal you listen to. Now, even right now, we have overcome that crisis, right? You know, once we put in effort, we spent six months or nine months to try to rebuild a lot of system in place, and then conversation went back between our customers and us, went to something else, right? No longer is about the frustration with the platform quality. So it actually provides you some feedback mechanism about like, okay, the balance is now rich. You need to pay attention or shift the, the the focus to slightly different ratio. It's not something that you stop, right? Once you actually reach this stage, you need to maintain the status quo. At least the, the bar is now here and you need to maintain it. And you will constantly calibrate to see whether you're still on the right path, right? At that point. But internally, I mean, there are a lot of things that you can hear from your own employees. When I talk about own employees, engineers definitely is our own employees. But, you know, my starting point actually will be talking to our customer support team. I enjoy actually talking to our customer support specialists and try to understand about how much they enjoy their job or hate their job. They are very talented people and they have a lot of passion about it, but they hate their job. When they constantly hearing, you know, someone call them or email them and talk about how frustrated they have with a product on a particular issue that they have reported to the engineering team, but nothing has been done to it. Again, like they really want to help a company to be successful, but sometimes they get frustrated about like, okay, many people complain about it, nothing is done, Richard. Is there something that you can do about it? So people inside the customer support they are probably closest to our users. Their consumer users, enterprise customers, they probably will be able to reach out to your CEO and talk directly to your CEO and uh, to me, right, to represent their company. But a lot of the consumers, they probably do not have the same way to actually provide feedback. A lot of times they file a ticket or they actually call the customer support. So this is also a very good signal for you to actually understand about their frustration or how they feel about the product. The other thing that I like to do in the organization is, this is actually based on some of my experience I had many, many years ago when I was in Microsoft a long time ago. We built this enterprise product. I work on this product called Active Directory, which is in Windows. We were building a new tools that is supposed to help customers to solve certain problems on adding machines to the Active Directory. We thought we built it very, very well. We thought it's so easy to use internally. I mean, we have some debates on what is the best way to do that, but everyone felt that we did a fantastic job. And you know what? We actually put this product into a research section a session. And then we actually invite some of these like experienced Active Directory administrator to come and try to see like, let's perform this task using this new tool that we built. And we record the session on how they do it. And we see that they struggle in achieving and accomplishing the task. And at that moment, all the engineers do not debate anymore about like, how awesome the features that we have built was. People just say that, Let's file a P0 bug and go and fix the issue because our users, even the experienced administrator, could not figure out how to use this new functionality. So I think that that experience actually taught me a lot of things. Sometimes you can look at the number of bugs, you can theoretically debate whether something is good or bad, but nothing is better than like seeing how your user uses product and show it. To your engineers, I don't think any engineers will feel proud when they see this kind of situation. So it's also a good way to inspire uh, our engineers to you know get some signals and see whether their product is is an awesome product or something that needs to be improved.
0: It's a really powerful perspective to share for how to inspire your engineers and sort of light that fire and create that sense of motivation and momentum to solve that type of problem. I I had another question, Richard, because I think one of the the unique perspectives is you sort of have the whole long tail history of Coursera through a couple different phases. And so I was just curious, like how the speed versus quality conversation has changed in the maybe the post IPO stage, I know you mentioned earlier that the fundamentals of it haven't necessarily changed. But I was wondering if there are any sort of nuances or or details for how the conversation might be different, or how you all maybe arrive at those priorities now at this stage
1: of the company. I, I think it's probably less related to whether we are a public company or not a public company. I think it's just a matter of scale. A certain scale, you need to try to focus on different types of things because the the opportunities and the risks associated with business evolves over time, right? But over time, as a company scale, you need to think about different aspects of quality, right? So again, quality has many different meanings. Sometimes people mean bugs, sometimes people means performance of their site. But security, privacy, those are a level of quality. Like that is where the customers actually look at that and see that whether you miss the basic expectation on the attributes of your product. Many customers, especially enterprise customers, they basically have very strict regulations or expectations on compliance standards that you have achieved or guarantee on certain level of protections of their data. So as the company becomes bigger and bigger, some new dimensions will come out. So for example, in the last, I think one to two years, we put much more emphasis on the areas on improving the overall security postures of our development process, of our systems. We definitely think about in the early days when everybody had access to every single systems because that's what is needed for engineers to actually get their job done. And probably that was the quickest way for engineers to get their job done. But right now we have over 250 engineers we need to create some structure to allow people to access to the system. They have permissions to access, and they need that to get a job done. But we probably need to isolate certain systems. Like for sensitive operations, we need to separate out. And for people who have the business need, who are the experts on that, to operate on those systems. I think a lot of times it's not even because like we don't trust people in the organization. But I think the basic thing is like we have inherent trust in all the engineers that I have in my team. But sometimes bad things happen is because like their system gets compromised and then people can access through their system to access to certain type of data. So it's our responsibility to think about like how do we protect our users and how to protect our engineers. So when you ask about like over time, naturally you don't spend that much effort at the very beginning to think about all these issues about privacy, security, quality, performance. You just want to get the things out and people try it. And over time, gradually we'll have like some new things that come out. Like it can be functional bug, it can be scalability of your system, it can be internationalization that because you have many international users, some of these things about like security, privacy definitely take a front seats to pay more attention to.
2: I have another question around quality versus speed. One of the categories questions you really got on this topic is how do you separate or allocate in terms of time or in terms of people for the focus on quality or the focus on speed. I know every organization can be very different, but at Coursera, how do you balance the two?
1: Here's the way that I think about organization and people's responsibility. So, first and foremost, I think all of us exist in the organization is because we want to help the business to grow and advance the mission of the company. I mean, that is first and foremost. And people need to think about what is needed for them to achieve that goal. For example, we want to double the number of users. We want to double the number of enrollments. These are things that we want to do. I mean, there's still so much work we can do to improve our business. That is still the first and most important thing for everybody to think about. And that's what our customers actually use our product. I mean, they don't use Coursera or buy Coursera or enroll in Coursera because we have the best quality. The starting point is about like, because it solves a problem that they are facing. Maybe it's because like, they need to up-level themselves. They need to reskill their employees or they want to actually get a new job. Like that is the primary reasons that people coming to Coursera, not because you have like two bucks, right? People don't think about it this way. So I would say that like, if the way to actually make the business successful is to create much more innovations, then people need to put their bias towards building more new functionality and, and solving the problem for our users. But there are times that we know that the fundamental blocker is because our customers and users are frustrated, our learners are frustrated with our systems. Then they need to slow down and try to build better architecture, better quality, so that we can continue to move on and continue to serve them better. I think that at meta level, that's what everybody needs to think about. So now, technically, how do we implement that? So the statement that we define, at least in Coursera, is people should feel to run as fast as possible as long as you meet these like three quality objectives. So we have some minimal bar about our quality objectives. Like, for example, availability is one thing that we measure. So each team, they own a set of systems to serve the learners, and each of the systems, they have a set of APIs. And we measure the availability of these APIs, like the error rate of these APIs. So we basically say, run as fast as possible as long as the availability of your service is more than 99.95% on an ongoing basis. So that actually means if you are 99.96, then don't spend much more time on improving the availability of your system. That means you are at approximately the right balance on what you want to achieve, like go and run and build as many features as possible. But if you're right now at 99.90% of availability, that means you're probably off balance. That means you run too fast. Like you run too fast, maybe you're skipping certain design review. You're skipping certain unique tests, You're skipping some scalability implementation in in your product. Like end result is that you have more errors than what is acceptable. So that means your team needs to slow down. I find it a very effective mechanism because uh, again, like when you have a set of very talented engineers in your organization, they don't wait until a crisis happens, right? Like a, a lot of time, they are very smart. They can tell that like, if I try to do something that will be a consequence two months from now, and nobody wants to get to the jail that said, okay, availability is too low that now I need to stop working on building new, cool, innovative features for two months. Like nobody wants that, right? And the way that people you know get to that outcome is they see, okay, this is the bar. If I know that I'm going to go down here, I better actually improve the architecture gradually over time so that I'm still always staying ahead of it, right? Instead of going below, then I'm in jail. I think that's the way that I help my team. Basically, run as fast as possible. As long as you meet these three metrics, that is the basic quality measurement of our product. Just to be clear, this kind of quality measurement is not identical across all teams. I mean, we all understand that there are certain product function areas are more critical than the others. For example, like payment probably is the most sensitive one. Like people care about uh, transaction, like it is a disaster if we charge people five times for their product, right? So these kind of things that like you cannot go wrong and you need to have very high standard. Maybe in that particular case, the number of bugs or availability needs to be much higher than other services, right? We call tier one services, right? Some of the tier one service Need to have much higher standard than some of these more experimental things that even if there's some error it probably does not disrupt the workflow of the user or does not give like a terrible experience to the user you have some leverage on controlling that for this team these are the standard you need to achieve for the other team you may stick with a lower standard but it empowers the team to run faster to try more different things so that is how we actually structure our organization to strike that balance between speed and quality.
2: Love the approach to answer the question to meta level first and then jump into the tactics and also the, the flexibility of that uh, and also simplicity of that methodology.
1: Well, think about that the traffic system I talked about earlier as an analogy, right? Actually, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, in a traffic system, they basically get you to the point that one well, one, you can drive 65 miles per hour. And sometimes people speed as well, as long as you follow a set of rules in the organization. And those rules actually can help you to reduce the accident rate in the organization. So I'm sure if a lot of people get into accidents, they will change the split limit from 65 to become 60. I mean, that's pretty much what happens, right? That is the same actually within the company. So you want to make sure there's not a lot of people die, collide with each other or cause major disaster. But other than that, our job is still to enable our business to run as fast as possible and serve our learners the best way possible.
0: That was an incredible, incredible concept to sort of wrap up the, this part of the conversation, Richard. We have a couple rapid fire questions we wanted to, to try to squeeze in before our, our time concluded. So if you're ready, we'd love to transition to a couple of those questions for you. I think I'm ready. All right. Perfect. Okay. So rapid fire question number one, what are you reading or listening to right now? I really enjoy Rick Hoffman's Masters of Scale podcast. So number two, what tool or methodology has had a big
1: impact on you? You know, as a leader, I really apply this tool I call uh, PQPA that is precision questioning and precision answering. Sometimes in the organization, we have a lot of many different things that's happening. And sometimes it's really hard to actually get to the core about like what people are talking about. What is the exact problem that you're trying to solve? I find this tool incredibly useful for me to try to get get a quick insight about the major, the core of the issues and try to offer help as needed to the organization by removing the noise, yeah, around that topic, yeah.
0: So number three, what is a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit
1: the mainstream yet? I'm really interested in this new artificial intelligence technology called GPT-3. So I've seen some demos of it, it's pretty fascinating. If you haven't seen it before, basically it's a way that it crosses a lot of uh, articles on tech material on the internet. But in a way that like because of the advancement of natural language processing, now it can mimic human being, not just about by understanding something, it can even create articles. If you give it some hints, it will create articles for you. I think historically when you think about AI technology, it's a pretty binary or mathematical type of things, right? It tells you like whether this is a cat, this is a dog by showing that picture, right? But now I think artificial intelligence is trying to get into the creativity space, which is pretty fascinating. Think about it in the future, you'll be able to see an article that is written by a computer because it learns so much about certain type of topics. And you cannot tell it's by computer or by human. That's both scary but potentially groundbreaking for many of the companies and and applications in the world.
0: I immediately jumped to the the question of do you think there'll be courses on Coursera created by a GPT-3 like national language processing model?
1: Not in the near future, but I don't know. Maybe like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it may become possible.
0: Yeah. That is going to be fascinating. Wow. Okay. Question number four. What's your favorite most powerful question to ask or be asked?
1: I like to ask these few questions all the time. So the first question I usually ask, when people talk about a topic and the particular solutions, I always try to ground myself by saying, what are we trying to accomplish with this? You'll be surprised on how many times many of us, or including myself, fail to answer these very simple questions. Many of us are are trained to be problem solvers, especially like engineers. Like you have gone through that every single day. You're trying to solve a lot of problems every single day. And then we enjoy tackling interesting challenges. But at the same time, I think sometimes we can easily fall in the trap of finding a very sophisticated solution, but without clearly defining what the problems that we are trying to solve. I'd just like to ask this question about What are we trying to accomplish with that? How would success look like if we actually do it well? I think it often resets the conversation to really stick on, like, does it solve the problem? Versus, like, is it a cool solution?
0: That's great. Final question, Richard. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's resonating with you right now?
1: Yeah, so this is actually coming from... uh, So I used to work for LinkedIn, and our CEO, Jeff Weiner... I think he always talked about this concept as I act like an owner. I think this is still something that I still took it to heart after many years, even though I don't work at a company anymore. I feel that one of the major transition points for my leadership uh, and leadership style was by internalizing this statement. So I was a manager even before you know I, I heard about this statement or internalized it. But a lot of time I think a perspective about working in a job is there's a job description, there's a of expectation on what you do within that job. But there are always a lot of things that is not in your job description that as a leader, you need to take responsibility on trying to solve that problem. And many times before you actually take that leap and actually change your mindset, a lot of times when problem happens, you think about like, well, there is a problem in the process, so someone else should fix it because someone else created that problem or there's a problem in that technology, then we'll say, well, Team B should be working on that to solve that problem. I'll just wait for Team B to actually get this done. Well, the majority of the time, actually, it's true that like, we need someone else to actually help us to solve the problem. Once I internalize this message, the question start starts from me is, always start from my side, as about what can I do about it? Is there something I can do about it? When I say something I can do about it, does not mean that I go and change the code immediately myself, right? Maybe sometimes as simple as, let me figure out how do I describe this problem to tell the stakeholders about under what situation I experience this problem and what may be my potential recommendation on how to solve that problem. So I think making yourself to feel like an owner to a problem makes a huge difference on your perspective and really empowers like you and the rest of organization to try their best and make this company, make this environment, make the culture, make your product much better than before.
0: Richard, thank you so much for your time, your stories, and your insights. I know that Jerry and I both really appreciate it and that our members, the the community, everybody listening to the podcast also really, really appreciates it. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me to be here. So I had a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Richard Wong. Our job as engineering leaders is to design and optimize a process or system that allows us to move both speed and quality at the same time. The challenge is the opportunities and risks with the business evolve over time, so speed and quality can fall out of balance, and at different scales, we need to focus on different things. In fast-growth companies, you need to constantly redesign your system to address those changing priorities. How do you know if you need to shift your priorities? Listen to your customers for when their feedback shifts between we want more features to I am frustrated with the platform. When things are out of balance, changing your company's focus on speed or quality starts by creating high-level alignment on priorities with the leadership team. Most often, no one's going to tell you they don't want more quality. So to create alignment, you need to make sure that everyone is operating from the same set of facts. Communicate the trade-offs you have to make when you change focus, especially the activities or the deliverables that will need to stop. A common trap here is when everyone is operating with different definitions of what quality is. So make sure that you're operating with clear definitions and understanding. After you have alignment, clearly define your objectives and the objective functions that you're optimizing for. Once you've identified the issue that you want to prioritize, now you build the new system and structure and set goals around it. Then you think through the process and inspect each element of the problem, set up a test organization, build a test framework, conduct postmortems and retrospectives. Throughout this change, your role as a leader is to radiate positivity and explain why this change is important and to show progress to your teams, because people are motivated by progress. Your priorities change at different stages of your company, so you need to evolve your strategy to focus on the right things at the right time. In the early stages of your product, optimize for innovating and building new features to the point where customers are giving you feedback— both positive and negative feedback are equally good. Negative feedback means that your product is addressing a problem and that your customer ran into an issue and they want to continue to use your product. So it's a good signal. How do you balance expectations for speed and quality as an engineering leader? Long term, executive leaders need to trust that your investments into the engineering function are approximately right for the company. You gain that trust by building the skills to effectively represent engineering to the other executives. Your ability to gain trust so that they don't have to evaluate every decision at a micro detail is how you gain the freedom to make the right priority adjustments to speed and quality in your teams. Misaligned expectations for speed and quality often stem from a disagreement on methodology. When that happens, focus the conversation on what success looks like. Then the solutions and methodology tend to fall in place. One process that Richard introduces with his product leaders, after setting business goals and rigorously prioritizing, he has a set contract with product where every quarter they reserve 10% of engineering time to solve technical debt issues within the organization. This time distribution flexes, but it empowers the team to identify the best use of their time to solve quality issues on a continuous basis. How do you prevent spending too much time on quality-focused engineering work? Richard introduces these questions to his engineering team. Who will care about this? What's the benefit to our users? And what's the benefit to our business? This drives focus on the intersection of both good engineering challenge and key business problems. These questions also help with the build versus buy decision so you're not reinventing the wheel and instead are optimizing for impacting your users. What are the signals for when you need to shift between speed versus quality? Look for external signals like feedback from your customers, When you're early on, you don't have a lot of signal from customers, so this is where you can focus on speed. And look for internal signals that come from your own employees and engineers. Richard's starting point is typically the customer support team. Nothing is better and ends theoretical engineering debates than actually seeing how your end users use your product and showing that to your engineering team. Even now that Coursera has scaled, Richard still is biased to pushing new product functionality and speed as long as they meet basic expectations of quality for users. Setting a baseline expectation helps balance your team's time investment on new features and quality work. And here's the specific framework that they use. People should be able to run as fast as possible as long as we meet these quality objectives. Explicitly defining your minimum quality objectives and criteria empowers your team by providing clear rules, constraints, and structure to operate in so that they can run as fast as possible. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.